found on page 633 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honour and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Uh, I'd like you to keep open your Bibles uh, at Psalm 149. We're going to follow it quite intensely as we go through the sermon. Uh, it's good to be back at Platt. I've been traveling quite a bit, and even better to share with you in this amazing psalm, a praise psalm. I'd like to start with three experiences that I've had, three stories, if you like, First of all, a number of years ago, I was visiting a church in Accra, in Ghana. And as the church filled with people from the street, handicapped, the grotesquely misfigured, the poor, the needy, the outcasts of society, I realized being the, the one, <clears throat> the only white rich boy in the congregation. And as the drum started and the worship meeting went in full flow, I saw that these people were somehow transfigured as I looked at them, and that I was the needy one. Thankfully, the Spirit of God enabled me to lose my inhibitions and was able to join in the worship service of a lifetime. They had truly learned to connect high praise with a daily fight for survival, their Christian survival in a very hostile world. The other day, I was in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Meetings there were hosted by a local Baptist church and college. The pastor and leader of the church was a true servant, looking after me in amazing ways and with great detail and wonderful Asian hospitality. And as I got into his car on the third day, he turned to me and with no introduction, he said, Brother Peter, I want to let you know that I always carry a gun. Not sure what to say, I did not respond. But he continued how as once as a professional boxer, he needed to protect his family. Now, as the authorities could not be trusted to do this. Well, as a closet pacifist, 
it left me wondering. But it didn't wonder about the high praise of God that came through his life and deeds and service in public and private. Going through my emails, a picture was sent to me by a brother from China. It showed me Chinese believers worshipping in the park with packed suitcases alongside them. Their church had been blown up, and as it happened, and as has happened to quite a few churches in China, and the caption showed that they had their suitcases with them in case they would have been arrested during their service. Here, we see the high praise of God in the park going hand in hand with taking along the sword of the Spirit as they were prepared to suffer for the gospel. Now, I want to invite you to read Psalm 149. As most of you know, it comes on the heels of the other praise psalms we have been thinking about. This praise psalm, however, is a bit different. Firstly, the other praise psalms are directed at creation itself and all the people and Israel, but this psalm is very clearly directed to the assembly of the faithful. You'll see it repeated in verse 5, let the faithful exalt in glory. By the way, I'm using the NRSV, sorry, but that's what I prepared in. Uh, but you can no doubt follow it to the text in the NRV is very similar. And then in verse 9, this is the glory for all the faithful ones. This assembly was created by God. Creation in this particular psalm is used in this limited form. It was the creation of the assembly during the Exodus and as Israel. And God himself is their king. Now secondly, there's an extraordinary change in verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and the two-edged swords in their hands. Now we are then shown the judgment for the kings, their peoples and the nations, and we're told that this is the glory for all God's faithful ones. But I don't know about you, but when I first read this, it made me worried. Was I reading this correctly? And if so, how on earth does a sword or swords in your hands connect with the praise of God? Thirdly, most of the Psalms we've dealt with in this series encourage us to praise God for what he has done and what he is doing. But this psalm concentrates on what he is going to do. It is a psalm in praise of the future, of what God will do. And as we will find out, it takes a new psalm to do this kind of praising. Now when we read the psalms for worship, we often forget that they were written quite a while ago and in a very different kind of a context. We often read it as if it was just written for us. And we immediately apply the psalm to our own situation. We rather conveniently leave out the bits we don't know what to do with. And uh, in this psalm, for instance, the sword is a bit of an embarrassment to our 21st century sensibility. So we turn to it, we turn it into a celebratory sword or a spiritual one or a decorative one. 
as used in, say, a dance. Now, it seems to me that the Israelites, to whom this was directed in the first place, may not have taken it that way. So, I want to have a bit of a good look at how it applied to the Israelites. So, let's have a look at Psalm 149 in a bit more detail. First, we have the gentle command and the reminder. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The halal, the praise of of Yah, God. And the next line shows us how we should be praising God. Sing to the Lord a new song. The phrase, new song, also appears in a lot of other psalms. In actual fact, Psalm 42, 96, 98, and 144. And then it only ever other, the only other reference is in Isaiah 42, verse 10. Now, beside these mentions, there are none in the Old Testament. And what is interesting to note is that in their context, all these mentions of new songs are accompanied by music instruments, and the object of their praise is the king and his future judgments. And it's exactly what we find in this psalm. So new in this context is not just a new song as opposed to ones we normally sing, but as in Isaiah, new meaning it's of a different order. Like the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, or later the new wineskins in the New Testament, or the new heaven, or the new earth. To the Israelites, it would have had the ring of a new great deed of God to save them in the future. And we will say more about the newness later on. And there we read they praise the Lord. Where? Well, they did it in the assembly, just like here. In the assembly of the faithful. Praising the Lord is best done together. The psalm was probably written during the latter years of the exile of Israel, or just upon the return from exile, so that they united once again in praise, so they hadn't had the privilege of being together like this. And they'd come together, and now they could sing a new song. And how are they to do this? Well, they were to do this with instruments, and there's a selection of them in my, uh, in, uh, in my uh, translation. It says the lyre, which is probably the, prede- uh, the predecessor of our own guitar, Uh, I don't think it matters very much which music instruments you choose. However, it's also with dancing. And uh, if you want to read some amusing comments, you can go and read some of the commentators. Calvin is particularly interesting when it comes to that. But dancing was a feature. And as an aside, we need to remember that the, the, the assembly of Israelites had not always worshipped in song and music. Mosaic worship, even though it had trumpets, was a spoken liturgy as far as we know. It was King David who introduced music instruments and singing and worship, and in our psalm also, dancing. So what should they get so excited about that it will make them dance? What do you get excited about that makes you dance? Well, God had created their assembly. God had made it. God had done it. They were chosen by God himself. They were together again to praise their creator together. God is also their king. 
reminding them that he didn't just make them an assembly and a nation to get on with it on their own. No, rather he goes wherever they go. He's their leader, the ruler, the king. He is there for them now and in the future. God actually also takes pleasure in his people. He actually has a good time. He loves us. And he enjoys doing this. And the more so, as they humbly serve and praise him, and he then gives them the victory. So reason enough to, pray, to praise God for all he has done, is doing and will do. In verse 5, the faithful are to exult in glory as they sing for joy on their couches. Well, a lot has been written about these couches, and I will not weary you with all that. But one commentator then comes close in recognizing that this is possibly associated with repentance. It's on your bed that you often take stock of the day. Then this extraordinary change in verse 6, connecting the high praises of God with two-edged swords in their hands. So how would the Israelites have taken this? I think, literally, I think they took, just, they took it just as it said. And as we read in Nehemiah 4.18, where they rebuilt Jerusalem with tools in the one hand, a sword in the other, and the high praise of God on their lips. I imagine they would surely think of the times when God had asked them to fight in holy war against the Canaanites. They may have remembered Moses in Exodus 7.11, lifting both arms and his staff in prayer and praise as the Israelites were defeating the Amalekites. And they would remember the times when God fought on their behalf. Fully armed they were, but there was no need for any arms because God routed the enemies before them. The kind of praise in the context of worship goes against our 21st century sensibilities. And so the suggestion is made by some commentators that the swords were really used in an accessory, in a sword dance. But there's no historical evidence of there's ever being a tradition in Israel. So I think it's much safer and much more likely to assume that the Israelites at that time would take it literally as referring to fighting swords. Remember, this Israel is the assembly of the faithful. It's not how we would describe Israel today. Here, they are the humble, the underdogs, the losers, the conquered ones. So the next verse seems a bit over the top. It says that Israel will be executing vengeance on the nations, punishing the peoples, binding their kings and nobles. Really? Really? Yes. Really, says God, with my help and in my name. So with the high praise of their glorious king on their lips and in their hearts, they execute judgment as decreed by the king himself on the peoples and the nations and their kings. The children of Zion had been punished by God and had been taken into exile. You see, holy war goes both ways if you don't remain faithful. But the time was coming for those who had done the judging to be judged themselves. 
So for the assembly of the faithful, this was a psalm of hope in God. Hope in the God who had finally, who will finally put all things to rights. And they were also assured that they had their part to play. Their praise fully identified them with the mission of God to all the nations. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So how did Jesus fulfill this psalm? Well, Jesus mentions the sword in Matthew 10, verse 34, where we read, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against a mother, and a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here the sword has turned metaphorical. It's turned spiritual, if you like. Jesus shows that it's not by the sword of war that his kingdom comes, but by taking up our cross and following him. All the violence has been taken out by the cross, by his cross. In Matthew 26, verse 52, Jesus said to Peter, remember Peter struck the ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, put your sword back, Peter, put it into his place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do, not, do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will have once sent more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen in this particular way? So the real sword has no more use in the kingdom of God and its advance. Jesus shows us clearly that there is a new way to advance his kingdom, a deeper way, a more thorough way, because it recognizes the real enemy. And in Ephesians 6, verse 17, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Against, <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and have done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And with all of these, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And lastly, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword here is identified with the Word of God as the tool with which to defeat evil. Further, in the New Testament, we pick up 
on the new song in the book of Revelation, where it's mentioned twice. First of all, a new song is sung by the living creatures, who up to that time had only spoken in chapter 5. And in chapter 14, where it's sung by the 144,000, representing the myriads who had been sealed by the living God. And in both cases, this new song is accompanied by, yes, you guessed it, by musical instruments in front of the king, celebrating his coming judgment and victory, setting all things to rights in his creation. So in Revelation 19, we also see mention of a two-edged sword, now coming out of the mouth of Jesus, coming out of the mouth of the one who rides as the King of kings and the Lord of lords on his white steed, followed by the angels of heaven. (coughs) As an aside, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, doxologies, or high praises to God, and judgment are following one another again and again and again. And you go in, you see the liturgies in heaven, and then you see judgment coming. A liturgy in heaven, and judgment coming, and so forth. We hear the assembly of the righteous sing a new song immediately before the final judgment takes place. We see Jesus at the head of his angel army riding into final battle, which really is hardly a battle at all as all his opponents are destroyed by his word. They don't even fight. They just destroy it. By the word of his mouth, a double-edged sword. Now that we have looked at what the assembly of the faithful, new song, high praises, and a two-edged sword meant to those who first sung this psalm, and how it ripples out through the rest of scripture, we are ready to consider how to apply this to ourselves. We praise Jesus, our Lamb, with a new song. The new song is the song of Jesus. A song that Revelation teaches us as we look forward to his appearance, who alone is able to open the seals of judgment. He is the elect of God. We praise God for the fellowship of the faithful of the church, and the high honor of being part of this congregation. And therefore, it's especially joyful to praise him together. Our praise can make a difference, as we saw in Accra. It can make a difference. It can make you shine. It can transform you. Last Sunday, I was in South Africa, and I was in a congregation of people who were having a hard time. And during the last hymn, People were so moved by their love for each other and by the preached word that they sang with full voice. And several people, as they sang, they were reaching out to those next to them. And before you knew it, row upon row was holding hands together because they were together, because they were praising God. They were full of the Spirit of God. That is what happens when we praise God. We praise God as the new assembly of the faithful, the church, with a new song in our mouth as we look forward to the certain coming victory. But we also realize that there's opposition. And it's close. The powers of darkness are at work. And so we praise God armed with that double-edged sword, the word of God. 
And in praising we come with joy and musical instruments and some may even come in dancing. Personally, I think there is maybe a related application in it when it comes to real swords, as our Kazakh friends show. It's possible to praise God and proclaim the gospel while using weapons when as underdogs we are without protection or are in the service of our rulers when our country is at war. I said perhaps. But one thing that is very clear with no perhapses is that in the kingdom of God there is only one way. We are to be living sacrifices as our Chinese friends are showing us today in the third of my opening stories and live so to be always prepared to die. Praise God and praising God can be a very costly affair. It was true then, it is true now. As we look at all the martyrs of the church of which we read in the book of Revelation, but you know, it is those very martyrs that are set to reign with Christ in glory. To close off, I'd like to pray a prayer written by a Palestinian scholar and friend, Johanna Katanacha. Let us pray. I lift up the banner of my God, the Lord of Lords, the one who is full of justice and love. I sing today while I'm thinking of a new song of the peace we long for. I will dance and sing knowing that God will fulfill his divine decree. And I will rejoice in the Creator and delight in the King of Kings, the God of Jacob. I'm gleeful, knowing that the kingdom of God will replace the problems of this world. Today I shall dream, sing, delight, rejoice in the Lord. The earthly reality may look different, but in Christ I can see and taste the end of oppression. Hallelujah. Amen.